your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark. And we're going to be looking at chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. His disgrace is our grace. And I want you to see that this morning clearly. Mark, as I've said many times, records an abridged, kind of abbreviated version of the gospel, of what Jesus did while he was here for three years, his ministry and his passion. And he captures today the horrific events going on at the crucifixion. Now, most of his readers would know what a crucifixion looks like. They would know the agony and the pain that a person hanging on a cross goes through because they're in Rome. The people that are, he's writing to, they've seen Roman crucifixions. But they haven't really seen the behind-the-scenes part that Mark's going to show them and show us in this passage this morning. He wanted to capture for them the full humiliation that Jesus Christ went through for their salvation. So I want you to hear this morning as I read this what Jesus endured for us. Starting with verse 16. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying homage to him. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him terrible let me pray father i thank you for this account and and i thank you for what it means for our soul help us to see how we can apply this passage to our hearts and our lives that we may experience the grace from your son's disgrace in jesus name i pray amen so after pilate convicts jesus with absolutely really no evidence and then sentences him to the shameful, uh, ruthless, really, uh, crucifixion, so their form of execution, Jesus takes the humiliation of this crucifixion to provide humanity with eternal forgiveness. That's the whole reason he does this. He's, he's providing eternal forgiveness and eternal life. 
So what is the purpose of the details leading up to Jesus' execution on the cross? Why would Mark show us this? Why would God have Mark record this for us? Well, like I've said, his disgrace becomes our grace. Jesus endured obediently. Obediently, Jesus endured three forms of humiliation as he went to his death. A vindictive form, a violent form, and a verbal form of humiliation. First, we're going to look at the vindictive humiliation that he experienced in verses 16 through 20. Let me read those again for you. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. And getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. So after this conviction and after Pilate washes his hands and says, I'm not guilty, and he blames it on the Jews, and the Jews say, his guilt and his blood be on us and our children, all that's happened, he sends him away to the soldiers. He hands him over to the soldiers. And this, this word for company here, um, to give you an idea how many soldiers this could potentially be, the word in Greek means a tenth of a legion, which could be up to 600 soldiers. Could be down to 200 soldiers. But the point that Mark's making is there was a whole bunch of soldiers there. A whole bunch of soldiers gathered around this humiliation that Jesus is about to go through. Why were they all interested in Jesus' humiliation? Why were they interested to come and, and fake this, this mock salute to Jesus? Well, remember who they released. Remember last week we talked about Barabbas, who was in chains, in prison. And he was the guy that swapped places with Jesus. They unshackled him, turned him loose, and kept Jesus. Remember that. Because that's why these soldiers wanted to vindicate themselves. He had murdered somebody, more than likely a soldier. He had might have murdered one of their comrades in arms. He was a murderer, a rebellion, a, 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 an insurrectionist. He was, he was a bad man. He was a bad man. And he went free, and Jesus was kept prisoner. So here they are. They're taking out their vengeance on Jesus. And that's what their motive was. They took some faded, scarlet, probably, soldier cloak, and it probably looked purplish. And so they put this on Jesus as a sign of royalty. Purple's the color of royalty, if you didn't know that, because we don't live in a, a monarchy. Um, you can ask the crown. Um, the crown of thorns. I mean, this is probably a close representation of a crown of thorns. They were long. And these are very sharp, by the way. These aren't fake. I stuck myself yesterday putting it on there. So it's, it was real. They put that on there as a mock crown. And then they gave him a stick for a while. Matthew records, they gave him a stick as a scepter. Now, a scepter is, is, is just a symbol of power, but it's kind of interesting because when Jacob blesses Judah in the, in the last chapter of Genesis, he talks about Judah having the scepter to rule his brothers and his people, which Judah is the line that Jesus came from. So, it was interesting, but eventually they take the stick out of his hand and they start, they start hammering on the, on the crown of thorns to drive it further into his, his, his skin. 
And he's bleeding, I'm sure, profusely. He's already been bleeding profusely from the flogging he received. They mock him. They pretend to be like servants of his and hail king of the Jews, you know, and then they get on their knees and they're, they're just, they're just being humiliating, vindictive. They're spitting on him. They despise Jesus. They hate Jesus because Barabbas got to go free. The guilty guy that killed one of our, maybe more than one, got to go free. But one thing to learn about the Romans is they despised royalty anyway. You may think the emperor was a, was a monarch, but he really wasn't. He was a tyrant and a dictator and an emperor, but he wasn't royalty. The Romans always would disband any kind of monarchy in any country they captured. So they hated royalty. And Jesus has been charged officially as king of the Jews. That's what Pilate finally stopped. it. So they're play-acting reverence, but they're really not reverent at all. And all of this was intended to humiliate Jesus, to bring shame and disgrace and mortification to his, to his heart and his soul. But they wouldn't do this to just anybody. I mean, any normal common criminal, they would have flogged them and taken them out to the cross and crucified them. Probably wouldn't have been all this. They would have made fun of them. They probably would have you know, tripped him as he's trying to carry his cross, those kind of things. But Jesus received special treatment. He received this special vindictive behavior from these soldiers because they hated Jesus. And then, to make matters worse, after they've mocked him and this robe has been on him probably for a little bit of a while, they rip that robe off of his back. Now, just imagine the scabs that had formed and clotted with that robe. It reopens all the wounds. It reopens all the, the, the mess on his back. But they were defrocking Jesus, which is another act to try to shame Jesus. You are no longer king, and they pull off the robe. Um, they just continue to show their, their hatefulness. But they put his clothes back on, which is actually a, a little bit merciful because most people that were crucified by the Romans went from the jail to the cross naked. Not partially naked, completely naked. That was part of the humiliation. But it says right here they put his clothes back on him. Now maybe the Jews' you know, sensitivities might have caused them to do that, but the Romans didn't care about people's sensitivities, so I don't know. They just were, they were nice enough to him to put his clothes on him. And then they, they saddled him with a cross, a full cross, a full cross, not just a beam. And I'll explain that a little bit later is how we know that. But the soldiers get their vengeance. They're vindictive. They hate Jesus because Barabbas got to go free. They're taking out their, their anger on Jesus. And they lead Jesus away. After treating him with utter contempt, they lead Jesus away with this probably self-satisfied, prideful sense of, of satisfaction because they vindicated their comrade through Jesus. But that vindictiveness is always temporary. As the centurion, which we read a few minutes ago, will testify to. You know, vengeance or revenge is always a dish best served cold, they tell us. But I've found that it turns the heart of those who serve that revenge cold too. It never really satisfies. Which is why God commands his followers very clearly not to take vengeance. Paul quotes it in, in Romans 12, 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, 
I will repay, says the Lord. We're not to take vengeance. That's not our job. Leave it to the Lord. I know it's hard. <laughs> I know it's very hard. But that's what Jesus would have us do because that's what he did. Jesus, the true king, suffered a ridicule from these evil soldiers for the sake of our sin. That's why he went through this. That's why he put up with this. And in this act, we kind of see the true character of sin, don't we? We see the true character of sin, of our sin even. Our sin humiliates a loving, divine, gracious God. When we just decide to sin on our own and, and ignore God's law, God's rule, God's commands on our lives, when we fail to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're humiliating God and Jesus who died for us, who gave us the forgiveness. That's what our sin does when we just do it as we want. The writer of Hebrews kind of reminds us of this, and he wants us to remember what Jesus went through. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, he tells us, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame of it, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So that's where Jesus is as, as a result of this humiliation. But then the writer tells us this, through the Holy Spirit, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. These soldiers committed such hostility against him so that you, this is for us, you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Let me read that again. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle, hopefully you're struggling against sin, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. He wants us to consider the humiliation that Jesus went through. So have you ever been humiliated for your faith? Have you ever been mocked or shamed because you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Or anybody tried to do that? I know probably most of us haven't. I haven't. I've been called names or, or laughed at because of my faith, maybe, but not, not humiliated. Most of the time, I'm humiliated because I, I'm sinned against God. That's my humiliation, my, my lack of faith sometimes. But we need to be bold and fearless with our faith. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage us to do. Jesus endured such disgrace for our grace, for our sin. We should be willing to just speak it. It's, it's the greatest news we could ever tell anybody. If you really believe that you're forgiven, you really should be telling people. I mean, we should want to, right? It's the greatest thing that they... Most people don't even know they have a burden of sin on them. Some of them don't even know they have the curse of sin and death on them. They walk around oblivious to it. We need to make them aware of it and that there's a Savior. So I would tell you to shed some blood for your Savior. Put some skin in the game, as they say, for Jesus' sake. Because you know what he did for you. So these vindictive soldiers, they humiliated our Savior... And then they carried out the vindictive sentence, the physical disgrace on him. Violent humiliation. 
verses 21 to 27. Let me read those for you. They forced a man, they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. So this is what Mark's readers are kind of thinking when you go through this passage. Some people carry their cross all the way to the place of crucifixion, and most likely they're carrying a beam, okay, which isn't quite as heavy. But they already knew that Jesus was not going to be able to carry a full cross, which would be much bigger than this, by the way. It had to at least be this long. They knew he wasn't going to be able to carry it. So, on the way to the hill called Calvary, they enlisted Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a province in northern Africa, had a huge Jewish population. He might have been coming for Passover. He might have been just coming in from the country for Passover. He may have been coming back to Jerusalem for business. Nobody really knows. But he shows up at the right place at the right time. Of course, he may be thinking the wrong place at the wrong time. But he shows up there. And Mark mentions his sons. Mark's the only gospel writer that mentions his sons, Alexander and Rufus. Because I believe that Rufus and his mother, Simon's wife, were in Rome when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. Because in Romans 16, 13, he talks about Rufus and his mother. So there's a connection, I think, with the the readers of, of Mark's gospel in Rome and Simon of Cyrene, which speaks volumes for Simon carried Jesus' cross, and from that experience, God saved him. God redeemed his soul. And the, and the soldiers would do this uh, almost all the time. They would press into service some civilian off the street because it increased the deterrence of the crucifixion. You know, to carry an actual cross that you weren't going to be crucified on, be like carrying an electric chair and not actually going to get electrocuted, you'd think about it. You'd think about it a lot. So that's why they did it. They were trying to provide more deterrence. And they took them to Golgotha. Well, what is Golgotha and what is Calvary? Where do those words come from? Well, Golgotha is an Aramaic word that's been transliterated into Greek. (laughs) And then we've transliterated into English. So Golgotha just means skull. They called it the place of the skull. Calvary that we know about is the Latin word for it. And it's basically from the root word calva, which means skull. So there you go. There's your your Aramaic, Greek, and Latin lessons for the day. Um, That didn't cost you anything extra. So that's why they called it that. And that's how we get the names if you've ever been confused about that. But don't think of Golgotha or Calvary as a hill with eye sockets and nasal sockets there. It's, It's probably not. It's probably a very smooth mound where they put crosses. And it just looked like the top of a skull. It really, there's really no evidence now to show whether it was eyes they just called it that because probably that's where people were killed and that's probably what it looked like the top of a skull and now the church of the holy sepulcher which constantine and, and the romans built over it later 
uh, is there. And there's a spot inside that church where they show you a place where they think Christ's cross was put. I don't know that that's exactly the spot. Um, I'm sure they did a lot of crucifixions after Jesus on that hill. But it originally was outside the walls of, of the old city Jerusalem. So upon arriving to the hill with Jesus, someone, more than likely some women there, were, were going to do an act of mercy and give him some wine mixed with myrrh. You remember myrrh from the story of the, of the birth of Jesus? He, that was given a, as a gift as one of the wise men? Well, it's a narcotic kind of thing. It's something that numbs you along with the wine. And this mixture was meant to kind of numb you while they pinned you to the cross and hoisted you in the air to try to ease some of your pain. But Jesus didn't take it. He refused to take that. Because if he had taken that and then he starts, the words he says while hanging on the cross, they would have just attributed it to he's drunk or he's out of his mind because he's numb. But Jesus wanted to have his full wits about him when this went on. He wanted to make sure that every I was dotted and every T was crossed in the prophecies about the Son of God being crucified for the sins of the world. And then Mark makes a very simple statement in verse 24. Then they crucified him. Wow. Very simple. The reason Mark didn't have to elaborate is because his readers knew. But it's it's a monumental act, and, and it, it, it's the, the sins of the world are hanging on that cross now on Jesus' shoulders. All of God's wrath, all of God's punishment placed on his son. And as the hammer strokes drove the nails into his hands and his feet, it just kind of punctuated what was going on there. It was a cruel death, very cruel there's nothing as bad as crucifixion. And it was inflicted on the only perfectly innocent human to ever live. And that is humiliation. That is disgrace. That is mortification. That is the worst thing that could happen to someone who was so good. Perfect. So they stripped him once they got to the hill. They took all of his clothes off. So I know you've seen movies, and, and it always pictures Jesus with some form of underwear on. They didn't have underwear of any kind. They stripped him. He was naked. And that may, may offend you, but he was stripped naked. And they began to divide up his garments. They began to gamble over his garments. Because that fulfilled a prophecy as well. In that humiliating moment, a prophecy is fulfilled regarding Jesus' clothing, and God's word is once again proved to be true. So naked, he hangs there between heaven and earth, humiliated, disgraced, mortified for our sin. And his fulfillment of the prophecy would validate his claims as Messiah to those who will be willing to listen and to hear. See, Jesus knew that his humiliation was for the lost that would be found, for those who would believe, those who had eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. Mark gives us a time stamp sometime in around 9 in the morning. Now, I wouldn't hold Mark to that because John thinks it was around noon. I think it was somewhere between 9 and noon because they didn't have a watch. They sure didn't have cell phones. They had a sundial 
and some sort of water clock, but not, very, not everybody had that. So they don't know. He's looking at the sun going, oh, it's about 9 in the morning. So it's a guess. It's a, it's a really wild guess. And so the discrepancy between John and Mark really is just what someone thought the time was. And on top of all this violence, Jesus is charged with being the king of the Jews. And Pilate had it written on, in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, John tells us. Three languages. King of the Jews, that's the charge leveled against Jesus, but he never ever said he was the king of the Jews. He never even said he was king of kings at that, to that point. But Pilate had the charge placed on the top of the cross, which is how we know it was a full cross, not one of those T's that you see sometimes depicted in crucifixion scenes. That's how we know it was a whole cross because there's no way Pilate could have put that above, the, above Jesus if there wasn't a piece up there. So with a full cross, there's a different way of putting that into the ground. With a T, they would hoist, they would put you on that beam and then hoist you straight up and put you on top of the, of the vertical piece. Not this way. They would lay the cross on the ground. They would lay Jesus on the cross. And they would put him on that. And he would be nailed to it. He would be laid on it, nailed to it, and raised by it. Hoisted up. Fulfilling also another prophecy. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So he was lifted up. He was hoisted in the air and dropped in a hole for our sin. With nails through his hands and nails through his feet. And they put him then between two criminals. Now, what's the odds of that? He could have been crucified on the end. Well, they were continuing to mock Jesus. Oh, if you're king of the Jews, then you've got a regent on your left and a regent on your right. You've got these men representing you, and you're on a throne in the center. They were just mocking him further. But he was murdered for our sins. He was murdered between two guilty men to gain the forgiveness of God for our sins. Grace from disgrace. It's just repeated constantly here. They were just constantly trying to disgrace Jesus. You remember the parable of the lost sheep? Remember that parable? You, you had 99 and you lost one, you go out. This is what the shepherd does to find his lost sheep. This is the stuff he goes through. This is the humiliation. He ha it's a naked man hung on a cross to pay a ransom for my soul's sin. That's what the shepherd did that went out and found the, the one sheep that was lost. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Well, the only way to really get a good application of this is to, is to turn to Isaiah chapter 53. So I'd ask you to do that. Isaiah chapter 53 captures this entire humiliation in a prophecy that was told 600 years before it happened. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 12. It shows the full meaning of this act. The execution of a completely innocent man. Let me read this, these verses to you. Isaiah 53, starting with verse 3 through verse 12. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was, he was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. 
yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. Like a sheep silent before her shears. He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich, a rich man at his death. Because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, we will, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil. Because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. You see what Christ has done for us? That was 100% fulfilled in this crucifixion scene. When you read this and you know what Christ did for us, what prevents you from believing it? What keeps you back from trusting his death, burial, and resurrection for the salvation of your soul? Why and how can we keep on sinning when we know what he went through? Ignoring our sin, justifying it, rationalizing it, whatever you want to call it. We just kind of ignore it. And we ignore this whenever we do. We ignore his humiliation. So my plea with you this morning is don't abuse his grace. Don't take it for granted. Don't cheapen his love. He has adopted us as children. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? That the king of kings would die for me is amazing. I'm not anybody special. So the question we need to remember and ask ourselves every day is, will I live today for King Jesus because of what he's done on the cross for us? That needs to be our question every single day. So we've got vindictive soldiers humiliating Jesus. Now we've got violence on a cross humiliating Jesus. And you think that would be enough. But you know, human beings, we like to pile on. We like to kick a man when he's down. And they did. They provided some verbal humiliation. Verses 29 through 32. Let me read those for you one more time. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! 
the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. We just like to pile on. Why would you scoff at a dying man? I mean, no one ever comes down from the cross alive, okay? That's a fact in Roman history. No one ever gets crucified. Even if their hands are tied to this, they stay there till they suffocate or they starve to death or some animal kills them. It's, it's terrible what goes on. Why would you scoff at a dying man? Because you have a self-righteous attitude. You have an attitude and a belief that this man deserved what he's getting. And they felt this need to voice their opinion. So this crowd, who five days earlier had praised him as the king, the Messiah, the son of David, is now saying, oh, if you're so great, come on down. So they need to voice their opinion and, and, and basically kind of put out there that we agree with you, chief priests, and we agree with you, Rome, that this man should die. Now, Let's back up a second for the crowd's sake. If they really believe when the Sanhedrin convicted Jesus of blasphemy that Jesus had really been blasphemous, then the, the punishment fit the crime because that's the punishment in the law. But I don't know if they believed it or not. It kind of explains how a crowd can turn so quickly, a religious crowd like that. But why would you ridicule a condemned man? I mean, because they felt vindicated. They felt vindicated. When Jesus did not meet their expectations. Remember, this crowd is expecting a warrior king like David to come in and defeat the Romans, not be defeated by the Romans, because that's the way they viewed this. They viewed this as utter defeat. They didn't expect someone that Rome could kill. And some of these people may have witnessed Jesus' miracles, but their self-serving attitude led them to taunt and ridicule Jesus. These are people that probably knew him. What does this say about them? It says, it says that their expressions reveals pride. It re re reveals some sort of self-satisfaction, some sort of self-righteousness about their position in life, arrogance toward the Son of God. For now, that's what they're thinking as they criticize and ridicule Jesus. And then the Jewish leaders, they, they get in on this and they now reveal their true colors. They reveal the fact that they are smug and spiteful instead of caring for the soul of someone dying. They have no concern for Jesus' soul, just something to say that they were right. They're spiritually deficient. They even used the term Messiah, even though they didn't believe he was the Messiah. Why'd they do that? Because when the people hailed him five days earlier, they used Messiah language. And even when Jesus confessed in their trial that he was the Son of God, that's Messianic language. So they were using it to taunt him again. Or at least they thought so. The truth is, is that he was, is the Messiah. Would they have believed if Jesus had come down? <laughs> no. No. They wouldn't believe, believe when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Why would they believe him if he came down from the cross?
But Jesus couldn't come down because that would have been disobedient. And Jesus could not and would not disobey his father. End of discussion there. I mean, they didn't believe when Sunday came. <laughs> they weren't going to believe him then or any of them. So the, the criminals, now the criminals get verbal against Jesus too. The two guys being crucified next to him who are guilty, who have committed crimes, they get verbal and they're, they're, they're actually, because they're ruthless men probably, they begin taunting Jesus. They even challenge his power. Hey, Jesus, save yourself and us, is one, one, one gospel writer records. <laughs> Do something for us. They had not faced their crimes completely either. They hadn't accepted that they were sinners. Yet. There's more to that story in a moment. But Jesus hung naked on the cross in agony with the weight of the world's sins on him. The wrath of God poured out on him. And these yahoos are verbally assaulting him that are on crosses right next to him. But Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. They can smirk now, but Sunday's coming. They can scoff at Jesus right now, but Sunday's coming. They can ridicule Jesus now, but Sunday's coming. Oh, it's coming. They can laugh at Jesus. They can joke about Jesus. They can punch each other in the ribs and say, we got him. But Sunday's coming. They can pat each other on the back and say, we won. But Sunday's coming. That's our joy. That's the truth. It will all be made right. As, as despicable as this scene is in our mind right now, it'll all be made right come Sunday morning. All be made right. Jesus endured all this for the sake of our redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. Here in the death of Christ, I live. We all hate verbal humiliation. We hate anybody ridiculing us. We hate it. Gossip, slander, whatever you want to call it. It all makes our blood boil when we're misrepresented or we're talked about behind our backs, especially untruthfully. Well, first of all, we must stop doing that. <laughs> if you're doing it, stop it. And secondly, we must forgive and forget those things because Jesus did right here. He did. He forgot. And Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 2, 23. Listen to what Peter says about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, Jesus has got God on his side. He didn't worry about these people. Their words didn't bother Jesus. He experienced the humiliation, but he didn't let it get to him because he knew what his father had him there for. And you know, we rem you remember... A few days earlier, than, or, or, I mean, less than 24 hours, Peter's accosted by some servant girl in the courtyard. Remember how angry Peter got about that? He was verbally assaulted. How angry. He, and he wrote now, he writes now to show us what God's Spirit can do when it changes us. Listen to what he writes later in 1 Peter. He says, having a good conscience so that 
when you are slandered, not if you're slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. See, let God put them to shame by your good behavior, not by your retaliation, not by your quick remarks, not by your smart comments back. You may be quick on your feet with your wit. Let God put them to shame. So how have you handled verbal scorn and ridicule? Have you been verbally assaulted for your faith? Do you see the grace that Jesus showed during this? Everybody's ridiculing him. Everybody's putting him down. Everybody's begging him to prove himself. He was dying, but he did not retaliate verbally. Another reason why he didn't drink the wine and the myrrh. He didn't want to let his emotions get away from him. He took their disgrace so as to give us grace. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. See, in God's kingdom, grace always wins. In God's kingdom, grace is the champion. True redemption comes by grace, and victory only comes by the grace of God, and it comes through this death and humiliation. Jesus experienced these three forms of humiliation, and he experienced them as they were merciless to him. But he did it for our sake. He did it for the sake of dying for our sin. Remember what he went through. And, and I don't want you to think that all the events that I've described this morning were just incidental happenstance events. They're, they're, they're part of the full humiliation that Jesus Christ was meant to go through. Remember, I told you, not everybody that got crucified got treated the way Jesus is treated. Not, not many of them wore a crown of thorns. Not, many, not most of them were nailed to a cross. They were tied most of the time. These were part of the plan for the salvation of humanity. And, and the greater story, to finish out the story, we have a testimony of someone right then and right there in the middle of this humiliation finds Christ, finds salvation, finds forgiveness for their sin. Someone who was verbally challenging Jesus woke up and remembered, I'm a sinner, and discovered I'm a sinner. Luke tells us that before midday even happened, one of the criminals recognized that he was a sinner. He was guilty. He told the other guy, hey, we're on a cross because we deserve it. This man's done nothing. He corrects the other thief. He begs Jesus to remember him in his kingdom today. That's all he says. But right then, that man becomes born again. Right then, Jesus tells him, today you will be with me in paradise. I, I just wonder what happens when he got to God, when he got in the presence of God Almighty. You know, what, what happened? How did he explain his existence in paradise? This guy who'd never done anything good, he couldn't answer one Bible trivia question. He didn't even know there was a Bible trivia. He probably didn't know anything about the scriptures. When he was asked, why are you here? If he's ever asked that, but why are you, how did you get in here? You know what his answer probably was? 
the man on the middle cross told me I could come. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. And the man on the middle cross tells you today, you can come. You can come to know forgiveness. You can find eternal life in believing that this man died for you, that he rose for you. He suffered for you, just like he suffered for that hardened criminal. Brothers and sisters, let's make sure we haven't undervalued Christ's humiliation. Let's make sure we haven't just assumed it, took it for granted. Help us not to forget that God sent Christ to this for us. So as we come to our time of pastoral prayer, we need to confess taking it for granted. Because I'm pretty sure all of us have. (laughs) I know I have. This week, as I prepared this, it was like, oh boy, have I taken this for granted. But also, during this time, let's ask God to let us be humiliated for our faith. To let us suffer a little bit. Because you know, it it becomes more precious to you when you have to put a little skin in the game. So we're going to take a time of pastoral prayer. If you'd like to come to the front and pray, you're welcome to do that. We'll be silent prayer for a few minutes, and then I'll close us out. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.